Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We are live with you for the next hour to answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, if you have questions about the Bible, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture, or even the Christian worldview, or questions on other worldviews even, really any honest question, as long as you know we're going to delve into the Bible to find the answers to those questions. That's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope, and we are live. You can send your questions in through our various uh, online platforms, which I'll be going through in just a moment, and I will be fielding those as we go along. My name's Dave Robson. As I mentioned, I'm your host today, and we'll be just checking on all that online activity with us today, Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Peter Martin as well. How are you guys doing? Awaiting the allergy season. Yeah, I know. It's already we're, here for me. So. Yeah, we're all feeling <laughs> a bit some allergies yeah. today. I hope you're well out there, but all feeling a little snuffily, so excuse our snuffles and voices and my voice is very deep today yeah. actually which probably helps for the radio and such but <laughs> helps with your optimus prime impression it does it does which is what i spend most of my time doing so <laughs> yeah well thank you guys for being here making yourself available for these bible questions today and as i mentioned a reason of hope is a live broadcast we're with you monday through friday 5 to 6 p.m mountain standard time here in tucson Arizona is where we're broadcasting from. It's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. You can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's a great home base for you. Um, while you're there, you can just have a click around, check out things going on here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you're looking for somewhere to fellowship and you're in the Tucson area, then you're more than welcome to come check us out. We're near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway. Uh, we have services Wednesday evening and three Sunday morning services. So check all that out on our website. You are more than welcome, but we're not interested in poaching you from another church. So uh, we're just glad you are going to church and worshiping the Lord and in fellowship and all that good stuff. So, But for the purposes of A Reason for Hope, if you follow that Watch Live tab that's right there, that will take you to our live page. The direct link, link is ccftucson.online.church. Or you can just, again, follow the... Oh, I pressed the button too many times. Or just, uh, like I say, follow the link from our website. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show, and you'll see a schedule right there. Not only Reason for Hope shows, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship and other events that we have coming up. But when we are live, you'll see the live video. You can sign in with a username, and you can chat with me. How exciting for you, and for me also. So that's one way that you can join us. Another way is on Facebook. Of course, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Tucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Don't forget to like and share if you've been blessed by this broadcast. We'd love to reach out to the people in your sphere of influence as well. We have an app for your mobile device. Again, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that in your app store. You can download that on your iPhone or your Android or your different mobile devices. And we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. So if you have those devices or a smart TV with Roku or Apple TV, uh, look for our channel and you can watch us on the big screen as well. We are just cool like that. We're on YouTube as well. The channel is called A Reason for Hope. So search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. But don't type all that in. Just search and you'll find us. You'll see the Calvary Chapel White Dove logo right there. That's a great place to go for archive as well. If you missed any shows or you want to rewatch them and our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, really anytime we've gone live, it's archived there. Just go to that live tab on YouTube and you'll you'll find it there. We apologize to those tuned in yesterday who had some questions. We had a special guest. If you missed that, you'll want to watch it. We um, had uh, the founder of uh, He Intends Victory, which is 
an outreach and ministry to those who are um, infected and affected by the HIV AIDS virus in Africa, but actually all around the world as well. So you'll want to watch that. It was a really just a beautiful um, Reason for Hope show and also our service, which is archived there as well, he shared um, as well. So, um, But if you had questions, I hope you can join us again today because we will be getting to questions today as per the huge, as they say, these young kids. Uh, our senior pastor, Scott Richards, is on Twitter. He's not with us today. He's usually with us Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He's a senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. And you can follow him on Twitter at Scott R4H. He posts highlights from the show. He posts uh, kind of commentary on world and news events from a biblical perspective, kind of a prophetic end times pers perspective, that kind of thing. It's very interesting um, and informative to follow along with Pastor Scott on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, at Scott R4H, you can follow along. And of course, our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. You can email us there anytime. Um, if you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to the last show we did pre-recorded. So you're not, not live with us per se. So use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. And we will get to those questions on our next show. But on all those other platforms, we are live as can be and anything can happen. Huh, boys? Yes, anything. and by the way, uh, we also are going to be adding another link in which you can join us. We'll be uploading our questions of the week to Rumble at oh. A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A as well. Very nice. Is that like an upcoming uh, social platform? Uh, it's actually starting to fit into its own. It's a very good alternative to YouTube. Of course, it's not free from any forms of tech tyranny as we know these days, but they are welcoming in some voices that have been silenced on YouTube. So we are uh, encouraging an exodus there as well. Oh, very good. So Rumble, and what was the name of our... A Reason channel? for Hope Bible Q&A. On Rumble. Very good. I'll have to add that into my whole spiel. Well, without further ado, Peter, would you like to pray? We like to pause and pray, of course, because we're handling God's word and his truth. And we want to do that well, and we need him to do that. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> Is that good, <laughs> good enough reason? That's, that's, you know, give me a couple more. <laughs> also. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We're grateful for you. We do pray that this time would be devoted to you and your truth. I pray that as we speak about these things, whether it's the, the book we're going to be going over, the questions we're going to address, and all these things, I pray that you would be glorified and that those listening would be blessed as a result. We're grateful for you, God, in your name. Amen. 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 Well, Thursdays, Peter, usually <laughs> kick us off with a uh, book recommendation. You have to say the name of the author. Well, this guy is not only an author, but an artist. <laughs> and his name is uh, Makoto Fujimura. Was that pretty close? I don't know. Oh, no, I don't. <laughs> don't look, just because I'm half Asian, don't think I can pronounce that. <laughs> You're Japanese, right? Uh, <laughs> I yeah. do, but I say nothing. <laughs> you say it, Sean. Here, you kind of speak Japanese, huh? Makoto Fujimura. Fujimura. Fujimura, there you go. Well, you call your brother on the phone. He would be able to My brother, he could. He's probably asleep right now, though, because he is in Japan. Makoto yeah. Fujimura. <laughs> Very good. All right, excellent. So, uh... <laughs> Makoto Fujimura is, uh, he's an artist, he's a Christian, he's out in New York. You could look up his, uh, his works up on, he has his own website, he sells them. He's actually very, very talented. He uses more traditional uh, Japanese style of artwork. So it's very different. Some of it's more abstract, but others of it are not. Others of it are, uh, as the ones that Dave is showing, they actually do have a clear subject. 
And he's written a couple books on what he calls the theology of making. And he wrote uh, one very recently that he's trying to like summarize a lot of these ideas that he's had over the years. It's a very excellent book. I mentioned it a little bit last week and I said I can't fully recommend it, but it has a lot of really important elements within it. I want to amend that a little bit. I reread it this week and I'll say that I would actually encourage people to, to look this one up. Uh, he does a lot of the concerns I have about the book. He does address them, but he only gives like one sentence kind of addendums to them. Mm. So that's why I thought that they weren't there. They are in the book. He just doesn't elaborate on them. But I honestly believe this is one of the most important books written by a Christian in a long time, I, probably from this century, and I uh, am not saying that in an exaggerative way. There aren't very many Christians that try to tackle the integration of art in their activity of faith. Mm. And given the fact that he is a full-time artist and a Christian, he does probably the best job of any Christian that I've read, short of uh, Thomas Aquinas, who uh, is not very accessible to most people uh, in trying to meld these two ideals together. So mm. he definitely takes a very noble approach to it, a very noble stab at trying to integrating the ideals of what does it mean to be an artist and a Christian at the same time? Mm. Do those two coincide? How do they operate? And he does a very, very fantastic job. Last week, we talked a little bit about a different book called Addicted to Mediocrity by Frank Schaefer in which he essentially mentioned that the arts within Christianity have become really mediocre in the last century or so. And one of the main reasons is because we only see art as a means to utility. We only see the practice of art as you better be using it to promote the gospel in some way. We don't mm. see art as being a good unto itself. So a lot of artists within the church feel a little hemmed in. They feel like there's only one particular way for me to express my artistic vision, and that is in a way that promotes the gospel. And if I'm not doing that, then I'm not using my gifts in a way that honors God. He has a very different view of this. And like I said, his view is interesting. It's worth a read. It's worth wrestling with. It's an accessible book. He is an artist, so he doesn't write at a really high level. But he's a highly intelligent guy. And so I, I do believe it's an accessible book. It's a short book. And it's worth a read. I, I do think that if you have anyone in your life that is an artist or wants to understand the arts in a Christian framework, this is the book to give them. This mm. is the book to read through for sure. Um, uh, I don't have a lot of quotes from the book. I just want to read one main one because I think this really sums up his ideal. And I do want to talk a little bit to actually both of you on this because you are, I, I, would, I would categorize you as like a full-time artist. I guess, uh, that yeah. is your job. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you also do a lot of arts as well, mm -hmm. right? You do a lot of interesting arts. I don't know if any of you guys watching the show have seen Sean's artwork, but it's actually really uh, amazing. He does a lot of foil art as well as uh, you do modeling and things like that. Oh, uh, shucks. Yeah. Whenever I go by your office, I hear your your 3D modeler going. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's Sean working on something. So, uh, but anyway, this is, this is the quote. It says, in my experience, when we surrender all to the greatest artist, that artist fills us with the spirit and makes us even more creative and aware of the greater reality all about us. By giving up our art, we are paradoxically made into true artists of the kingdom. Unless we become makers in the image of the maker, we labor in vain. Whether we are plumbers, garbage collectors, taxi drivers, or CEOs, we are called by the great artists to co-create. The artist calls us little a artists to co-create, to share in the heavenly breaking in to the broken earth. 
Now, his main point, this idea of the theology of making, is he believes that we can encounter God more fully and more understandably in an activity of creation, in an activity of creative functioning, Mm. than we can through intellectual endeavors. Now, he doesn't discount the intellectual endeavor, and I'll talk more about that in a second, but he does say that the best way for us to encounter God is experientially and more practically through attempting to create because he's saying that that's what God is doing. He, when he makes the universe, he is not creating something out of utility. When we look at the knowable universe, we see that God actually took great pains to make things, I guess you would call it superfluously beautiful, right? Uh, so right. when we look at snowflakes, it's like, why is each and every snowflake unique? Why are your fingerprints unique? Why are your irises unique? Why is uh, why do the planets all look very different in the ways that they function and things that happen within their surfaces? Why is there so much unique, superfluous beauty throughout the known universe? And we see that God is very much like an artist. He also points to the the restoration of the universe as an artistic goal, which we'll talk more about later. But what he's getting at is if I really want to experience God, I need to be engaging in the kind of work that God is engaging in. Uh, that God's main work is that of an artist. So as I pursue whatever I'm doing, and he he does a very good job there to show that you don't have to be an artist per se to understand what it means to create, be creative in whatever craft you have. What he's saying is that you need to exercise creativity within your occupation in order to engage with God at this level. Mm. That's to be imaginative and to be creative and to engage at an artistic level, no matter what your particular occupation might be. Uh, Even in your relationships, there is an artistry there and harmonizing personalities and things like that. Um, Now, real quick, what's the main thing that I I feel like he didn't do the best job in representing? So he says it in a couple quick sentences. I mentioned it a little bit last week, but let me elaborate on a little bit. So when it comes to the arts, There is a clear warning within the scriptures about the power of the arts, what the arts can do. There is a reason that the second commandment is opposed to representing God in the works of man. There is a reason why Satan is represented as an artist within the book of Ezekiel specifically. Uh, It talks about him having timbrels and uh, basically spending time within the Garden of Eden as a cherubim who covers, right? So there's a reason why the arts are represented in this way, although God also does fill artistry within his early covenant. So Aholiab, and um, I can't remember the other, I think Bezalel is the other guy's name, They he actually fills them with his spirit in order for them to work within the tabernacle and to create works of art within it, which is really fascinating. So what he doesn't really take labors to do is, why is it that the church struggles so much with the arts? Well, the main reason, uh, historically, and this goes all the way back to Plato, which we talked about a little bit last time, is that what the arts have the power to do, the reason why we see them as as sometimes bad, is because actually they're so good that when they're turned to nefarious purposes, they become really bad. Um, So what the arts have the potential to do is they have the potential to represent ideas in a direct format that hits you emotionally before it hits you intellectually. Now... That's very important to do because a lot of things that we understand intuitively, we don't understand intellectually. There have been many times after I've taught or counseled that someone has come up to me and said, 
I always knew what you were saying. I just didn't know how to express it. Right now, what they're saying is that there was a level that I understood this theological or biblical truth. I just didn't know how to express it intellectually. I knew it was true. I just didn't know how to say it, that it's true. Mm. Um, now, we experience this kind of thing all the time. If you experience deja vu, for instance, or if you have a dream that you feel like comes true, uh, a lot of people believe that that's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it is. I'm not going to completely discount that. But oftentimes what it is, is that you know something at an intuitive level, but you don't yet know it at an intellectual level. Mm. And so your mind is able to represent it in a image, in a symbol, namely a dream, but it can't represent it in words yet, right? Now, once we understand what the arts can do, then it becomes very clear about how the arts can be abused, right? Mm. So if I can represent something, in a way that touches your emotions before it touches your mind, that means that I could easily deceive you with the arts. Mm -hmm. I could easily point something out and present it as if it's true and beautiful and good, even though it really isn't. And I can trick you into thinking something is good when it is actually very bad for you mm -hmm. and very evil. And this is something that we see happen even in the book of Exodus, right? So the first representation, I guess you call it like an artistic representation that you have in the book of Exodus, is the construction of the golden calf. So Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. The people presume that Moses is dead because he's up there for too long. And they ask Aaron to create gods for them. And Aaron represents a god, namely a calf. And he says, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And the people accept it, mm. right? They accept that the work of their hands is the God that they're seeking. Yeah. And this is a temptation of mankind. When we become masters of craft, we sometimes begin to overestimate our abilities and we start to think that what we're creating is mm. something worth worshiping. Mm. Um, one philosopher was talking about some of these chat GPT bots. And uh, I can't remember what the one that Google made is called. But one of the designers of it said, this thing is real, right? This thing is actually intelligent. I had a very real conversation with it. It's real. It has a soul. And when you read the transcript of this guy communicating with this uh, AI, quote unquote, it's not actually artificial intelligence. It's very clear that this thing is just parroting back to this guy what he's already put into it, right? He, he hasn't actually put something new, a new consciousness into this thing. It's just parroting back to this guy what it thinks he wants it to say mm. because it's not actually intelligent. But you could see even in our modern enlightened age, someone is tempted to do the Isaiah 40 fa fallacy to look at the creation of their own hands and bow down and worship it. Say, I've created something real. I've created a God. I've created something that I could look up to that is greater than me, yeah. that can rule me, and that could actually uh, create betterment for me. So the arts have a very strong danger to it. That's why so many intellectuals have become skeptical of the arts and they fear what the arts can do. And a lot of Christians have actually deterred the arts because of this. They're like, well, you know, I don't want to have emotional manipulation happening within my church or fellowship. Yeah. You know, I know you've mentioned that to me before. Right. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want someone to just consent to something because they feel like it's true or have some over-the-top experience and they think that that's true. I want them to know God, and they can only know God through the truth mm -hmm. of the world. Now, an artist would respond to that, and he points this out. He does a very good job of elaborating on this. An artist points, this, points out, God is so vast and expansive 
it's actually folly to think that you can know God fully, right? To think that your mind is the best way to access God is actually a fallacious thing to think. This is why the vast majority of doctrinal statements within the Bible are represented in art artistic format, right? So we have in the book of Philippians uh, a, a doxology, right? A glory saying, an actual artistic poem about the nature of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. We have narrative formatted gospel accounts that tell the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And that's where we get the majority of our theology about who Jesus is from that. And we have ceremony within the Old Testament that represents man's devotion to God. And we have the longest book of the Bible being the Psalms, right? God is so vast and expansive. Oftentimes we do need a representation. We do need a medium that helps us understand him in a way that our minds aren't yet ready to understand him. And that's that's kind of mind-blowing. It's really difficult. But Paul even says, right, and I, I love the book of 1 Corinthians because Paul treads very carefully on both ends of the spectrum. <clears throat> to the intellectual, he warns them in 1 Corinthians that wisdom will lead you away from God, for that by wisdom man denies God. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So to the highly intellectual philosophers, he's like, be careful. Don't think that your mind, it's fallen, right? You have rationality, you have logic, truth is out there, it's true. However, your mind has fallen and you're more likely to believe something false as being true as opposed to something that's actually true. Mm. And some people think that intellect makes them more likely to know truth as opposed to falsehood. That's actually not true at all. They've done studies that highly intellectual people, they're so intelligent that they can convince themselves that their own fallacious thinking is true because they're so good at crafting arguments around their bad thought, right? Mm. So um, you, you, we need to be very careful about the mind. And the, and the artist is correct about this. They're also correct about saying how many people actually get to know God purely on an intellectual level first and then experience him? Almost nobody, right? Not right. even, I, I find myself to be a, a pretty rational person, but I experienced God before I knew him, right? I had an experience with God at a church service that I knew was real, I knew was true, and then later on, my mind caught up to the experience that happened within my soul, within yep. the immaterial part of me. So, and <clears throat> this is also why a lot of intellectuals were highly skeptical of the revival movements happening within the church, because they're like, well, this, those are just emotional movements, they're gonna fade out and they're gonna, they're gonna break off into heresies. Well. Again, you're, you're right and you're wrong. You're, you're right in the sense that you're saying that it's plausible that without intellectual truth supplementing the experiential truth that the people were going through, it can break off into heresy, just like the golden calf. But you're wrong in thinking that the experiences were manufactured. It's very possible that they were absolutely real, but that because they're so real and because they're so potent, it can lead people astray. It could lead people away from God. Mm. So you have this interesting dichotomy in the church and outside of it, by the way, in which intellectuals and artists talk past one another. It's like they're speaking a different language yeah. and they're on opposite sides of the same argument. Mm. So artists feel as though intellectuals are impersonal, unempathetic, non-compassionate, and focus too much on truth as a means of knowing God as opposed to experience. And intellectuals believe that artists think they know the truth because they're experiencing things, but they're actually being led into deception and into destructive heresies, right? So they're highly skeptical 
of the emotive experiences of those within their own congregation or in their own life. So he does a very good job of trying to balance that dichotomy and to Mm. bring it together. Mm. So as artists, right, as people who work at the arts, what do you think about the points that he makes in this book? I'm really curious to hear. Or Sean. As a musician or as a sculptor. Yeah, you share, Sean. I'm interested to... Obviously, my style and approach to art isn't necessarily creating things on my own, but trying to give respect towards the works of others before me. That's why I take requests of things online, not necessarily make a Sean Richards original, if you know what I mean. But what I always have the goal in mind of doing in these art works isn't just to convey an image, but to communicate an emotion. I'm doing this for free. I'm doing this because I want to represent Jesus in everything that I do. And if I can communicate that with as simple a gesture as a gift, something that would be in any other sense charged for thousands of dollars in a gallery, and just treating it as something common, it's not depreciating me, it's an opportunity through art to value them. So I think it is a fair point when a Fujimura-san is making this point of emphasis that we have the opportunity to convey God's character in more than just words. And whether it's through the giving of gifts or the expression and uniqueness of his pieces, I've seen some of them, and it's uh, very impressive, especially when you look at some of the techniques he uses in producing them. That's almost a art form in of itself. But just like the not necessarily dismissal of truth is his point, but the emphasis that it's a both and, not an either or. Right. I think that's absolutely valid. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's easy, you know, as a musician and songwriter and worship leader, it's easy to um, apply, you know, my gift to, you know, to a, a godly cause, so to speak. You know, yeah. I mean, I went, when I became a Christian, you know, I was 19 years old, I'd written songs, but they were about worldly things, you know, girls usually. And um, what else is there? To write what about? is that right about when you're a teenager? <laughs> a lot, you know? but you fight it. <laughs> but yes. Um, but when I became a Christian, I started to write songs about my relationship with God and and that that journey, and then you know worship songs and things like that. So it's it's easy to um, to see my Christianity in that. But I also, I mean, I think it comes down to knowing who to thank and who to glorify in it in the art you know because even more recently i've been writing instrumental pieces which have no words you know but just enjoying even the the um the the gift of music and the the creation of music and the the math of music um just how you can play an a major chord and it makes you feel a certain way and make Mm -hmm. it a minor chord and suddenly you evoke different emotions and just the the brilliance in that you know Mm -hmm. just um how I don't even understand how that can be. Yeah, um, how can a tone have an emotive <laughs> element to it? Right. I mean, it's incredible. Like, we don't it's fully incredible. understand it, but it's true. Yes. Right? Yeah. Simple producing something as complex as feeling. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So just, you know, honoring God in that and glorifying him in that. Um, you know, I've written some songs recently that aren't necessarily about God or worship songs, but still I kind of know who to thank for that. And, and inspiration as well is a weird thing for me because... I can have a day, you know, a day off, oh, I'm going to sit down and write a song and nothing happens. And yeah, I can be folding the laundry and suddenly comes on like a, <laughs> yeah. like an infection, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a reason why the Greeks thought of inspiration as, as goddesses, like the daughters of Zeus. Yeah. That artists would encounter and they, they would fill them with inspiration. There's a reason why they thought of them that way, because 
anyone who is engaged in any type of art, and I, I do engage in an art form, by the way, but it's called rhetoric, right? It's the, it's, uh, the art of being able to convey my thoughts and my emotions, not in uh, an art form per se, but directly in my words, yeah. right? And that is an art form, and it's a difficult one to develop. But uh, yeah, there, there are times where I'm just walking around, I'm like, whoa, like this, like yeah. inspired. And it's easy to see why people would think of it that way, yeah. that your mind is such a complex thing that has all these interactions with God's creation as well as the Holy Spirit moving in really indefinable ways within your soul and within right. your body right. that allows you to, again, just be like, wow, like I feel something so deeply, and now I know how to represent that. Yeah. Like you just understand it. I know how to represent that emotion in yeah. a way that I feel like people will be able to reciprocate. Yeah. And that is, I'm very careful with, I, I've heard so much people saying, I think it's like a false humility, like the Lord gave me this right. song, you know. Right. Um, and it's, it's, it, it hits me weird because it's like, do you understand if, if God gave you a song, yeah. <laughs> it would be like the music in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure yeah. where <laughs> it would know, heal the world. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, we don't even understand this music. It's so incredible. Yeah. Um, but like you just said more eloquently than I could, it is that, that gift of God giving me that ability to express myself, mm. you know, uh, in, in a way, in a, in a, you know, with my limitations. You know, and it does have that sense of like, wow, this is, thank you, Lord, it's a gift, but yeah. I don't believe it's God giving you, right. you know, if he, get, oh, he gave me this painting. No, if God gave you a painting, it would be like all the creatures in the ocean yeah. and just beyond <laughs> what we can even imagine, you know. But, um, uh, but yeah, certainly that inspiration, I do, I do believe comes from God and I've, I've experienced right. that because right. when I try in my own strength or just in my own time. I mean, what, what do you say to the, the person who communicates like, well, that's, it's emotional manipulation, you know, like when you when you're up and you're, you know, performing worship songs and they're so uh, beautiful and good, that's moving people to experience like beauty. But it, it's bringing it's actually detracting from God. It's it's mm. moving people away from God because it's moving them away from truth. What do you think about that? Um, well, firstly, I'm, that's why I'm incredibly careful that the songs we use or I mean, I guess probably any art form are accurate yeah. because I'm aware of that power. You know that if we're putting something to beautiful music and certain words most of the time if anyone comes up to me and says hey that song kind of hit me weird because of this lyric even if i disagree with it i'll usually throw that song out mm. because there's so many other songs to choose from right um but i understand the the, the power that i can have so i do understand that um but i guess the response would be the god i mean he created music yeah. i mean why else would you use that? It's an emotional thing. It evokes emotions. It's right. um, you can take words and put it to music, and it just elevates the power of that. I believe that's what he created it for. Mm. But you do need to, you know, with great power comes great <laughs> <Yeah>. responsibility. <laughs> no, well said. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree that obviously it is a gift from God to be able to directly experience, and that's why I think I believe Christians have organized their services the way they have, where there's a time in which we get to experience God through the worship. And then there's a time where we get to know God. Right. We get to understand that experience that we just had. Yeah. And then we have one final experience that is supposed to last with us as we leave the service and yeah. as we then hopefully begin to live out what God has for us. So I believe that it, that is why Christians started to structure their worship services in the way that they did, yeah. was to have that, like I said, that melding of experience with knowledge. Right. Right. If all you have is an experience, then you can fit in a lot of different interpretations of that experience. Yeah. And some of them are not going to be right. But if all you have is knowledge and you don't have experience, number one, like I said, you will grow cold. 
right? Mm-hmm. Though I have all knowledge and understand all mysteries and the gift of prophecy, have not love, I am nothing, right? Uh, I read that passage a lot because mm-hmm. I lean heavily on my intellect. Mm-hmm. And I have to remember that just because I know something doesn't mean I'm loving God in it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean I'm experiencing God in it. And it doesn't mean that that will then translate to me being able to love people better. Yeah. It just means that I'm puffed up in my own intellectual pursuits. Yeah. So I need to be very careful about that as yeah. well. Um, and, and although we don't see Satan falling to necessarily intellectual prowess, we do see people in the Bible falling to that, Solomon being the top, right? Yeah, one of the main warnings he gives in Proverbs is do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord. Uh, Socrates yeah. said, and I think he's correct, he says the reason why I'm wise is because I know I'm a fool. Right? If you don't understand the limitations of your intellect, you're setting yourself up for arrogance and you're setting yourself up for folly. So even if we have these amazing revelations from God in our minds, if they're not coupled with experiences which, trans- which transcend the truth that we're absorbing, then they are nothing. Right? They, right. they lead to nothing and they uh, are shallow and hollow. Uh, so I, it's it's like we said, it's a it's a both and it's a both and you need both the intellectual side as well as the artistic side. The people who understand this, unfortunately, are non Christians, mm-hmm. right? The reason why the secular world was able was able to move so rapidly through the culture is because there was a unification between the intellectual elites as well as the artists, right? So you had the universities in Hollywood taken over by secular atheists in around the fifties and sixties, and you see how rapidly. The culture has been altered just by those two institutions being taken over. Mm. Uh, so they did have harmony between those. The church used to. It doesn't anymore. But I'm hoping and praying, and I hope uh, all of you will pray with me, that there will be a reunification of those values. Uh, and you usually see, like I said, in churches, one or the other. You see highly intellectual churches that have their theology down pat, but the artistry within the church is absent. Um, they don't really express or explain the experiences of God, they devalue them, and therefore the people, like I said, become very legalistic, they become Mm. very intellectual, they become very biased, they become very cold and dismissive towards others. Mm. But then you have highly emotive churches, like Pentecostal churches, where there's, it's all about the experience, and there is no theology underpinning the experiences. So people are very emotive, and they're very loving, and they're very passionate, and they love God, and they want God to move, but they just don't have anything underpinning it, the, yeah. anything real, and so they do tend to move into heresy very rapidly. Yeah. So would you rather be Pergamos or Ephesus? Yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully both. I mean, hopefully neither, right? <laughs> hopefully, well, both, both in the best possible way. <laughs> uh, one last thing I want to leave this with, and then we'll get into the questions. He mentioned something that I just thought was really cool. Uh, it's called kintsugi, and Dave has a picture. He's gonna flash up. Yeah. It's a Japanese art of mending broken pottery utilizing melted gold. Wow. So they find, usually it's they're finding antique pieces of pottery. So some of these pieces of pottery that you find in kintsugi art are hundreds or thousands of years old mm. that they found. And mm. they file them down, each individual piece they file them down. Sometimes they're from different pots but they file them down and dye them so that they look like they're from the same pot, and then they fill the cracks with gold. Now, he illustrated <laughs> what God is doing to the world and to us using Kintsugi art. He did? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a surprise. So, so yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but what he's saying is that we live in a fallen creation. We mm. live in a broken world, 
And sometimes we think that what God is doing is when we say he's making us new, we think that he's throwing out the old pieces and just making something totally new from scratch, Mm. which is why a lot of Christians fear that their individuality will be lost in their sanctification process. But what he's saying is actually in, in Japan, this art form takes something that's valuable and it actually makes it more valuable. So some people actually break, they literally break pots and then they do this art form to it and it makes it more valuable than it was before. And he, he mentions that, you know, that filling, that filling or melding element could be considered the Holy Spirit. So God fills us with the Holy Spirit and brings back those broken pieces of our soul, our lives, our bodies, and our world into something that was more valuable before it broke in the first place. Mm. So this is a really fascinating idea, and it also helps us deal with tragedy and suffering. It helps us deal with loss. It helps us deal with regret and understanding that God is using even those broken pieces to make something that was even more valuable, something that's even more valuable than what was lost in the first place. So uh, like really, really powerful metaphor for sure. But one of the reasons why he uses it is because he says sometimes Christians focus so much on the heavenly, they forget that our contributions in this world will in some way be melded into what God is doing in eternity, Mm. right? He's taking the pieces that were broken and making something new. He's not creating something totally new. Mm. So if you just think that like the metaphor he used, Mm. it's like if you build a beautiful sandcastle on the sea and the tide comes in and washes it away, like how much value does that have? It's like, well, nothing. What value does your life have if everything you do is just washed away when God remakes the world? Then your life becomes essentially meaningless. Now, we don't know exactly how this will work, but he even has a hope that his artistry will somehow be integrated into God's new creation. Mm. Uh, he takes this from Revelation 22, but it, it's a very fascinating idea and one that I think a lot of Christians need to hear because oftentimes, again, we just feel like our lives would just be washed away mm. in the resurrection. And so they're like, we'll just focus on evangelism and going to church and studying the Bible because that's the only thing that's going to remain. And he's saying, well, th- that just teaches you that your life has no meaning. Mm. And that, that's it. It's just all wiped away. And yep. so your job doesn't matter. The things you create don't matter, right? You know, working on your house doesn't matter. Just it's all going to wipe away. So who cares? Yeah. He's like, no, it matters. Like your life matters and understand it in that lens. So uh, I thought that was a really good point. But anyway, uh, we yeah. went a little over. I think we should get into some questions now. Yeah. And there's, there's a comment from Rich on Facebook. He says, as a, communi- a communication scholar and a graphic artist cartoonist, I believe one can be both intellectual and an artist yep. and that's what you were saying about Are this you? author not necessarily can they be yes 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 right you were saying that it's, it's a rare thing to Very be rare. both but that's just as we close that out you were talking about this author he Ma- is Mako, yeah he is both those things and it was art and faith the theology of making right it was the book that you were you were recommending yeah. to that as we close that out but yeah and i guess to <clears throat> to appreciate i mean i think of me and Pastor Scott, you know, I'm the worship pastor here, and obviously he's a senior pastor. He's very intellectual, mm-hmm. and I'm very not, <laughs> you know. But to appreciate we're all part of the the body, and we all bring those different things. Right. You know, as you talked about, there's sometimes a, 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 um, a, a pushback, but um, understanding that we bring these different parts to the body together. So, yep. um, yeah, we have a question from, thank you, Peter, for sharing that. It's very interesting. Lot, lots of uh, comments sent along on our website, too. Yeah, well, I have a question from Casey here. Um, welcome, Casey. Thank you for being part of the the show. Her question is, uh, well, she had a situation. She had a family gathering, um, but her family member prayed, and he's a, a Mormon, I believe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was in her home. Uh, her question was, is it, was it wrong for her to allow a family member to pray? She said it will probably come up again because they've moved to town and they get together often to eat. Someone mentioned to her 1 Corinthians 8 about meat sacrificed to idols. I'm not sure if that's, that really applies to this, but I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 5, do not eat with an idolater. So um, how could she have handled that? Or should she have handled that? Is it okay for allow this family to pray over the food in her home? Is that yeah. food now cursed? Yeah, I don't think that was the point of that passage. When it comes to, you know, if I was in any other situation because we need to be straightforward with this, uh, members of the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, also known as Mormons, are not a Christian group. They are anti-Christ. They deny all four fundamentals of the gospel. They have co-opted biblical language in favor of <clears throat> no bones about it, a money-making scheme. Uh, it is a new branded form of Gnosticism. It is a false gospel. It is a false doctrine. It is based on the teachings of a false prophet. That all being said, you would be in the exact same situation as if you had a relative who was a Buddhist who wanted to do their you know, meditations and uh, chanting, and the family were to take that moment aside and uh, chant with them. That would, of course, be a problem. But if you permitted them to chant on their own, obviously you would be making a distinction between yourself and them, which is the real kicker here. If you're put in a position, of course, where there's, unfortunately, people in the name of God presenting themselves as if they are, that's a bad idea. Bad ideas need to be challenged. But if, on the other hand, you have the opportunity to just make this individual a part of your life, and so long as it's understood that they are in a position that you aren't, that relationship is witnessing to them in and of itself. So the key is understanding the difference between the message and the messenger, that you're loving the person but not necessarily supporting everything that they say, teach, or even are presenting themselves to be. Uh, Obviously there are people of the Church of uh, Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints that don't know a bit of what that actually teaches, and in very, very rare circumstances may just be a part of the church, but would actually be a Christian despite not knowing anything about what the church they're a part of is teaching. What needs to be understood, though, is that distinction, and I think the most important thing is that they're a part of your life, that they understand that you care about them, and that, of course, when hopefully you have the opportunities, Casey, to ask them important questions about what you believe versus their claims, and of course, making sure you're specific about the language. But those are the kind of situations where, for example, when Jesus was sending the apostles out, and he told them, just stay in the houses that you are traveling in, and if they uh, greet you, if the peace is declared on the home, but they reject you, take your blessing back. That's not worthy of it. But if, on the other hand, you provide that greeting, that uh, blessing of God's peace, shalom, literally, on that house, it will remain there, and then you're to announce what? The kingdom of God has come near to you. And what were they supposed to do? They were to prepare the cities for Jesus. I think that's what you're doing, and I think there's nothing wrong with that in any way whatsoever. But just make sure that you emphasize, as they're praying, you're not praying with them because they're not praying to God. They're praying to the Father, who they refer to as Elohim, which is one God among many, Adam God, according to Brigham Young, the spiritual progenitor and the uh, incestuous partitioner of Mary, one of his spirit daughters, and of course, many other things the Bible simply does not teach. So 
you have a pagan friend over and they decide to pray. You know, a little cringy to use the kids' term today, but it's yeah. not uh, not something where you have to say, "Oh, it's unclean." It's it's false, but no more false than if someone had a bad opinion on a movie when it ultimately comes down to the long term. Mm. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Peter? No, that's no? good. Thanks, Casey. Hope that that helps <laughs> you out. Keep pressing the wrong button today. There you go. Appreciate right. you being part of the the broadcast and hanging in there with us. Um, question from Renee. This is kind of a profound question. Yeah. <laughs> Simple but deep. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Renee. Thank you for joining us. Uh, while the National Park Service prepares for the winter storm in California, what can you say to the people to prepare for eternity? Whoa, there's a question for you. Here's 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, that is in the body, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or not. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We are well known to God, and I trust we are well known in your consciences. Obviously, the uh, state of California knows what to expect to a point when winter months are coming. They know how to prepare as far as the park services are concerned to make sure which trees are properly tended to and which plants may even need covering if they're going to survive. But what's interesting as well is that we're told, and we know a lot about what God cares about, how to prepare for the day that we stand before him. And that passage, terror, is oftentimes misunderstood as like temerity. But no, it's an idea of taking it seriously, that the things I do in this life matter, which our uh, brother over the pond uh, was very eloquent to point out. So yeah, that would be where I'd start. Yeah, I, I think I like how you put those together. Uh, it, it sounds very much like the kind of apologetics we see within the scriptures of pointing out someone's care and concern for one area of life but then not adding that up to the spiritual component. So uh, Jesus even said, he's like, hey, you know that when the sky is red, you know it's going to rain. And he's like, but you know how, you hypocrites, you know how to discern the times of and the seasons, but you don't know how to discern the prophecies and the coming of the Son of Man. So he's saying like, you, you have this immediate problem that's about to afflict your life and you care so much about it that you've learned to interpret the skies, which is not an easy thing to do. Mm. But he's like, but you have an eternal problem on the way, and you haven't even figured out what that is or spent the time to figure out what that is and prepared yourself for that. Mm. Uh, I think I think one of the great tools that Satan uses to great effect, especially in our culture, is a short attention span. Uh, it's very difficult for people to think past the next momentary pleasure that they're about to get. Right. And so they don't think about the long-term implications of what they're doing. Blaise Pascal, who a uh, Christian theologian, philosopher, and mathematician, he <laughs> was talking to secular atheists in France, and he says, you have to understand that death is eternal no matter what state it is in. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, even if you're an atheist, you're like, well, I'm just going to die and I'll be worm food. <clears throat> Great. Well, then you're worm food forever. Yeah. So there, there is whatever state death is in, it is eternal. And don't you think that you might want to figure out what that state is going to be and be mm -hmm. absolutely certain you know what that state's going to be considering the fact that you have to be there forever. I, I don't remember who said this, but they're like, you should really think more about the future because we all have to live there someday. You know, <laughs> like it's, this is exactly where we're going is to the grave and we need to definitely be prepared for it. So I, I like how you did that. That's definitely a, a good or sound apologetic tactic. If you have yeah. a family member who's like, oh my gosh, like I'm thinking about the fires in California and be like, yeah, I mean, that's really serious. Like, that's a big problem. We should be preparing for it. Yeah. But let me ask you a question. Like, what's the preparation like in your relationship with God? Like, have you thought about him? You know, yeah. like that's 
that's a that's a much more has far more implications than what's going to happen in a, in a fire right uh so i i think that that's a really good way to approach it yeah yeah it really is great question renee thank you i appreciate that question you've been part of the show today hope that helps you out uh yari i'm going to get to your question it seems yari that you're always someone that gets bumped. I seem to. <laughs> I remember you several days asking the same question. I don't know. It's nothing personal. I don't even know you. But uh, we're going to get to your question now because of that. And I'm going to send you a Starbucks gift card. No, that's not <laughs> that's true. But true. <laughs> I feel like I should. Uh, his question is, um, he said it was from yesterday. And this was written down from yesterday. So three days ago. Is it true uh, that Satan hates everyone? I watched a skit that portrayed Satan liking those that worshipped him and disliking Christians only. This is a really good question. Does mm. Satan, you know, when we... If we choose him, does he then like us and, yeah, we're part of the gang? Or does he really just hate all of mankind no matter he our is, salvation? He is a hater. As uh, <laughs> Levi Lesko said, he drinks haterade and he takes his vacations in Haiti. He is, <laughs> by nature, Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, a murderer. Mm. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Mm. That his ultimate intent isn't for uh, more allies. It's to literally undermine the creation of God. So if we're asking the question, you know, say, am I getting in a more favorable position with my enemy like uh, those who capitulated to the Nazis weren't uh, sent to the concentration camps or whatever? No, it's going to, of course, be a different relationship, but as intense towards you are the same, and we see that throughout Scripture. You can, again, note John 10, John uh, 8, I believe, was where he was mentioning he was a murderer from the beginning, and many others, but make sure that when we're I guess, making an assessment of our enemy, it ultimately ties back to the character of our Lord because that's spiritual warfare, draw near to God. Yeah, the prime sin that's utilized to describe Satan is that of pride. Um, when someone gives in to the sin of pride to uh, the nth degree, which is what Satan has done, it makes you intolerable to everybody except for your own self-interest, right? So if you've ever spent time with a narcissistic individual, you know that they really don't have friends they have people that they use towards their own ends mm, they're toadies <laughs> right they're toadies and that's that's what makes them such abominable people to hang around mm. they're very gregarious they're very congenial they seem like they're very friendly but really everything they're doing is calculated to simply use you for something for some end so satan has temporary alliances but those alliances are simply to mm. uh, procure his own ends he mm. as sean said he doesn't care about anyone he doesn't actually love anyone he simply wants to destroy that's it yeah, yeah. and if, if he could partner with a human in order to destroy he's happy with that right. uh it doesn't make him like that person it just means that he likes using that person for his ends and he is totally okay with whatever consequences happen to that individual yeah. as a result of their bad decisions yeah very good well yari thank you hope that helps you out uh, i had a question coming through our website how do we respond to someone who says that they love God but not religion and people telling them what to do. Basically, the idea of Christians are just bigots. Um, they'd rather be left for God to just guide them. I mean, that's a pretty popular opinion and way to view Christianity. You know, I, I love God but just not the church and, you know, tell me what to do and you guys are just bigots and you're so narrow-minded and all that kind of thing. Oh, and you sanitized the language a little bit. The person did. that uh, Zan is, of course, referring <laughs> to refers to us specifically as a cult and using that kind of inflammatory language really uh, emphasizes their love. But um, I, I'd like to default, again, Zan, you're sending this to us asking how to respond. Uh, three general approaches I'd recommend when you encounter this kind of hostile individual but is putting on a noble face. Uh, first of all, look up the 
TV debate that was hosted by Lee Strobel, the very same who wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, Resurrection, and so forth. Um, he hosted a debate between a man who actually attended the Calvary Pastors Conference oh, this last week, uh, Greg Kokel, who wrote the book Tactics, fantastic for conversational apologetics. But uh, he was accompanied by a, a New Ager who had this very same philosophy named Deepak Chopra. And mm. he, of course, uh, his uh, very uh, odd looking uh, demeanor was just saying, you, you believe that I'm going to hell and that everyone else is, uh, of course, going to hell if they don't believe the exact way that you do. And he's like, oh, I believe always to God and this all kind of stuff. We can't narrow down God. God just loves sincerity. And Greg Koch was very wise. This is the first tactic is to point out and draw attention to the main mistake not with a statement, but with a deeper question. If reality matters, do you think that would be important to God? And then, of course, he gave an illustration to help emphasize the point. He said, I believe that reality is what we run into when we don't take it seriously. Of course, it's an amusing image when you trip over something and you think it's not there, you think it's not going to affect you. But he was smart in taking this approach because a lot of people say, Truth doesn't matter when it comes to the spiritual because it's not real. It doesn't impact my life. It's just in my realm of thought. But the reality is, as far as a God that would create this universe, even if we're going to set the Bible entirely aside, no one would take this sort of approach if God was actually a serious matter to them, if they believed there was a conscious moral authority over all of nature that doesn't care about the sort of decisions you make. If we were created for a purpose and we don't live according to that, that matters. If there is a way to approach him, if he has revealed himself in a specific way and we don't care, that matters. So that would be the first thing to draw attention to. A question is a lot more effective than a rebuttal. The second is, again, much like with asking questions, what Greg Coco calls the Columbo tactic. Just pick one. This When they result to elephant hurling, say you're a bunch of bigots and this and that. Pick one and just say, you know, I, I agree with that, but there's, uh, there's something about that that bothers me. You know, you say that bigots, a uh, bunch of bigots, people in religion, a bunch of bigots. You know, I, I see a lot of people that are very uh, caustic and rude towards people who don't share their beliefs. But, you know, I don't share your beliefs and you're being very rude and caustic towards me. Do you, do you see my problem here? And basically take the top off of their house, show that they aren't living up to their own standard. Learn how to do that. Learn how to spot the assumptions, and you'll do great. Then the third thing, of course, is that when they result to profanity or personal attacks like this, but then put on that aura, target the emotion, not the argument. If they're trying to forcefully press their emotion into you, they're trying to do the steamroller tactic, point out the actual issue. I'm very insulted by the way that you phrased this. Could you tell me why you're so angry in your presentation of this or why it comes across so angry when you're talking to me about spiritual matters? Is there something specifically about Christianity that you don't like? That's how I would deal with these kind of exchanges, especially with all these four-letter words. I'm not just saying cult. Uh, yeah, um, so I'm going to take this really quickly from the perspective of someone who might be asking this uh, sincerely. So mm -hmm. there are some people that say this in a sincere way. Yep. Now, this does feed into what we've been talking about from the outset, and that is that people have experiences with what we call the transcendent, right? The things that transcend this world, namely the spiritual. 
right? When they love people, when they experience love and music and goodness and beauty, right? All these things show them that there is something beyond the world. But what they're saying is, I don't want a structure around my experiences. I don't want to know a true or definitive way to interpret these things. I just want, isn't it better to just experience them in the abstract and just enjoy them for what they are? Um, Well, the problem is, is that the greatest experience that someone could have is the experience of love. And when you love someone, you can't, a relationship could begin on an abstract form of just, I think that this person is very attractive and I enjoy spending time with them. But if you want to actually grow in your affection for someone, you have to know them. Yeah, You have to actually get to know them. Your experience has to be melded with some sort of a personal knowledge. So God has these experiences that allow people to draw close to him, but then he also has revealed himself in the person of Jesus because he actually wants to get to know you in a personal way. So you you can take your experiences and be like, this is amazing, but then you couple those with his revelation of who he is, mm. and that will help you grow closer to him. Yeah, very good. We're out of time for today. What a show. Man, it was jam-packed. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a comment from Claudia or Claudia. don't know how you pronounce it. I've known both. Um, referring back to how we open with the, the book recommendations, she said, this conversation reminds me of the verse which tells us, in everything we do, give glory to God. Mm. Well, that was just a great way to end the show together. So, Sean, thank you. Peter, thank you. We'll be back same time, same place tomorrow. Have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.